Good afternoon, and thanks for joining us for our Corn and Soybean Outlook Update webinar. I'm Jim Mintert, Professor and Director of the Center for Commercial Agriculture here at Purdue. And joining me are my colleagues, Dr. Nathan Thompson, who's an Associate Professor in the Department of Agricultural Economics, and Michael Langemeyer, who's a Professor in the Department of Agricultural Economics and also Associate Director of the Center for Commercial Agriculture. Well, we're doing our webinar today in light of the fact that USDA released a new set of world ag supply demand estimates yesterday, and there were some surprises on the report. Um, USDA did a fairly small increase in the corn yield estimate, just up two tenths of a bushel per acre compared to September. So that wasn't one of the bigger changes, but there were some changes in the individual state yield estimates. So if you look at those uh, real quick, uh, there were some significant increases, particularly in the northern part of the Corn Belt, that part of the Corn Belt where we've been talking about drought all summer long. So, Michael, I think you took a closer look at those yield estimates on a state-by-state -state basis. Yeah, what's particularly noteworthy is, is uh, Minnesota uh, estimates have been higher the last last two, two production estimates, but they're still about 7% below last year. And so despite the fact that they have came up quite a bit. Uh, they're still below last year. And I think that's a very important uh, point of reference. Uh, obviously, Iowa, Illinois, Nebraska, and Indiana uh, are higher than last year. But lower than they were just a month ago. So that was kind yes. of interesting. They did make adjust downward adjustments this last month in Illinois and Indiana, but they're still still higher than last year and they're record high. The record highs for Illinois, Indiana, and Ohio, and, and Michigan. So if you take a look at USDA's yield estimate uh, and production estimates, now, one of the things USDA did this month is that there were some kind of year-end uh, changes in the 2020 crop balance sheet. Um, so USDA actually went back and said that they had uh, overestimated the yield and the crop size of the 2020 crop. They reduced the size of that 2020 crop, 71 million bushels compared to what they had projected uh, just a month ago. And then, of course, we just already mentioned that small uh, two-tenths of a bushel per acre increase in the 2021 crop yield. Uh, still giving us the second largest crop in, in history. So when you look at it, um, production this year up, not quite, but almost a billion bushels compared to last year. So that's a big jump. Um, not, not an unexpected jump though coming in. On the export side, um, USDA raised the export forecast on this month's report by 25 million bushels. So they were um, just a little bit below 2.5 billion bushels. Now they're at 2.5 exactly. They had a small change, I think, in last year's um, uh, export estimate. It wound up at 2.75 billion bushels. So they're projecting a little smaller export figure for the 2021 crop than what we had in the 2020 crop. And then if you start taking a look at where we're at with respect to export shipments and export commitments, um, we're off to a little bit of a slow start on the corn side. We'll talk more about soybeans later. The picture is uh, even a little bleaker on the soybean side than it is on corn. But if you look at the export shipments that have taken place so far, they are down compared to last year. Some of that is likely attributable to the Hurricane Ida situation and the impact that it had on those Mississippi River terminals and the ability to load some of those shipments uh, for export for a few weeks. It's not clear how much of this is Ida-related versus um, other issues. And then if you take a look at uh, the commitments, though, the commitments don't look too bad. So if you look at the commitments, so this includes the quantities that have already been shipped in those first five weeks of the marketing year as well as the commitments that have been made so far for the rest of the marketing year. If you compare those to last year, they actually look pretty good. So total commitments up just a little bit compared to last year. 
commitments to China actually up about 100 million bushels compared to this time last year. So on the corn side, the total commitments look pretty good on the export side. There's been a little bit of sluggishness here early on, and I think some of that was at least related to uh, what was taking place with respect to the hurricane. If you look at projections of corn used for ethanol, no change from USDA this month, still projecting a small increase compared to the quantity we used in the 2020 crop year. Doesn't get us all the way back to those peak years back of uh, uh, 2016, 2017, and 2018, but still a modest increase compared to uh, the 2020 crop year estimate. If you look at the ethanol plant margins, you have to wonder if maybe might, we might see more ethanol production and more corn used for ethanol than maybe what USDA is projecting. Those ethanol margins look really strong. These are the estimated daily plant margins coming out of uh, uh, the Iowa State data set that the Center for Ag and Rural Development maintains at Iowa State. They've backed off just a little bit here in the last week or two, um, but still much, much stronger than we were this time last year. Uh, and really the strongest uh, margins we've seen certainly since the pandemic. And so that's good news for corn producers that suggests that those ethanol plants are probably gonna be running uh, at capacity or close to capacity. If you look at ethanol production numbers, they start to reflect that as well. So these are the percent change in the weekly ethanol production numbers compared not to last year, but compared to the pre-pandemic era. So two years ago, going back to the 2019 timeframe. And we don't have data yet from last week because of the holiday on Monday, but uh, the week before we actually saw those ethanol production numbers climb slightly above where they were two years ago. Uh, again, that's positive news for corn producers in terms of those quantity of bushels going through the ethanol plants. That bodes well for what could be taking place here this fall. Now, obviously that's gonna be driven partly by uh, demand for travel, demand uh, and the, for uh, gasoline usage, you know, how much people want to get back to work, et cetera, et cetera. So there's still a lot of issues there, but at least right now things look uh, probably as good as they have on the ethanol front. So the next one, let's take a look at those ending stocks estimates. And I've got two charts in here, one for the 2020 crop year, and then another one for the 2021 crop year. So these charts look at USDA's estimate of how many bushels we were going to carry over from the 2020 crop year into the 2021 crop year. And I've got their estimates going all the way back to June of 2020. And then as we progress through the marketing year, you can see how estimates suggested that corn stocks were getting tighter and tighter and tighter. We finally bottomed out in that July report. And then since then, those ending stocks estimates for the 2020 crop have actually been going up a little bit. So, and if you look at July versus October, um, that's a pretty significant increase in those ending stocks. And that kind of explains, I think, some of the weakness we've seen in corn prices here over the last couple of months. And then as you take a look at the 2021 uh, crop year ending stocks forecast, uh, again, you can see the big change. And going back to August, we were at 1.24 billion bushels. Now we've increased that by almost 260 million bushels compared to where we were in August, compared to uh, the September report. We're up, I think, what, 92 million bushels. So um, the supply situation has changed uh, on both corn and soybeans. And, and this kind of tells the story. Stocks are not quite as tight as we thought they were just uh, not uh, just a couple of months ago, really. So if you look at ending stocks as a percentage of usage, which is the way we like to look at it to get some scaling uh, as the size of the industry has grown over time, 
those ending stocks have changed quite a bit. Um, uh, so if you look at the 2021 crop estimate, it's now above 10% of usage at about 10.1. Last month, it was at 9.5. Uh, and in August, I think it was at about 8.5. So we've bumped that up. Those supplies are not as tight as we thought they were. They're still, by historical standards, reasonably tight. Kind of the thumb rule we like to use is above or below that 10% mark. So we're kind of hovering right at that 10% mark. Um, but I think that makes the market kind of nervous with respect to uh, continued yield information this fall. Uh, as we get yield reports from combines, I think it's going to be interesting. People are going to be paying very close attention to what's going on with yields and to see whether or not those ending stocks might actually be even uh not as tight as, as what's currently projected. I think that's currently uh, what people are really focused on. If you look at the world numbers, um, really no change on the corn side compared to last month, still at about 25%, um, still down substantially to where we were just a few years ago. Uh, but again, we didn't get any support from any further tightening of those world stock levels. And then if you look at the uh, marketing year average price projections from USDA, uh, still at uh, 5.45 this month, so no change relative to where we were this time uh, last month. Uh, so, Nathan, you've taken a look at pricing opportunities and storage opportunities for corn. Yeah, so obviously there was a, a negative reaction to the report yesterday, and then again, markets are, are negative this morning. Um, but just want to think a little bit about, you know, how that response has affected pricing opportunities. Starting out here, just looking at forward contract bids uh, here in central Indiana and how those compare with some um, uh, implied kind of storage costs. So uh, what we're looking at here, the, the uh, bottom line there, the, the gold, uh, dark gold line is the forward contract bids currently being offered uh, through April of next year. Um, so we compare that with both kind of a, a implied break-even price for an on-farm storage scenario and a commercial storage scenario. So basically what that represents is the current uh, cash bid plus some storage costs. So for on-farm, I have my assumptions here on the slide, one cent per bushel per month and a 6% uh, opportunity cost. For commercial storage, uh, I assume four cent per bushel per month and uh, again, 6% opportunity cost, you'd want to kind of do uh, a similar calculation for whatever your cost structure would be for those. But what you can see is that uh, throughout most of, of the marketing year that I have uh, here, those bids are currently a little bit below that on-farm uh, storage uh, cost scenario, meaning that, you know, if you forego that $5.07 bid today uh, and store out into the beginning of next year, Right, you using that forward contract, you wouldn't even offset uh, the storage costs that I've assumed here. That is until about in April. So that April bid is really right at that uh, implied break-even for the on-farm storage, meaning that if you wanted to store um, that corn today for sale in April and you locked in using that forward contract bid, you would just offset uh, those costs and be just as good as off if you sold for five dollars and seven cents today. Uh, the other thing to notice is, again, the, the cost structure there for the commercial storage is a little bit higher. And so, uh, you know, we're well below that. So if that was a scenario you were in thinking about storing some corn and commercial storage, you'd really want to be thinking about, you know, what is it that you're looking for in terms of a marketing opportunity kind of further out into the marketing year, uh, especially if you're looking at those forward contract bids, uh, given kind of where they are today. You know, there are other strategies of how you could take advantage of 
uh, some storage opportunities. Uh, but this is just strictly looking at, you know, forward cash contract bids for, for one particular location. And so we can see that there could be some potential for storage opportunities, but, um, you know, we got to really be careful on how we calculate those storage costs. You've also taken a look at the basis. Let's, that's been very interesting here in recent weeks. Yeah, so we've got a lot going on with basis. Uh, and again, that's just one of the two components that underlies those forward contract bids that I just showed, right? So there's the basis component, and then there's also the futures price spreads. So on the basis side of things, I want to take us through a series of charts looking at kind of what's been going on in some different geographic locations, as well as what's been going on at different kind of end users, right? So first here, we're looking at uh, corn basis for central Indiana. So this is just kind of a, a representation of a, a broad kind of average of what's going on in, in central Indiana. Uh, and you can see we had a pretty sharp uh, drop in basis since our last webinar uh, there kind of in the, the middle of September, as we kind of moved to the new crop, uh, you know, those basis bids really just dropped. Uh, and if you compare that with the historical average, where here I'm using uh, the average of 2018 through 2020 harvest years, uh, that drop put us right in line with that historical average of uh, what basis has been in central Indiana uh, this time of year. Now, if we go to the next slide, we can look at what uh, corn basis has been um, in Southwest Indiana. So again, in Southwest Indiana, I'm gonna call this uh, primarily driven by the, the river market on the Ohio River. Uh, and you can see we started with a much lower basis. And again, we talked last month about uh, one of the main drivers of that was what happened with Hurricane Ida at the end um, of August. And so we started out the crop marketing year with weaker basis than what we saw, say, in central Indiana. And again, that has stayed kind of right around that historical average and has actually kind of gone below that. And so that could be uh, potentially influenced by the ongoing issues in those um, export markets and those export terminals uh, associated with a hurricane. Also, as, as Jim has kind of shared, you know, uh, our, our exports are a little bit behind maybe where they've been in the past. And so that also could be influencing what we're seeing here uh, in terms of basis uh, on this kind of Southwest Indiana region. The other thing to kind of give some perspective to that is, um, you know, in the crop basis tool, we cover uh, kind of the Eastern Corn Belt. So Illinois, Indiana, Ohio, and Michigan. But uh, if we look at some basis levels uh, further down river, so uh, this is Mississippi River, uh, corn basis in West Memphis, Arkansas. So not quite at the Gulf, but um, you know, further down the river than where we're at. We can see again, a, a pretty sharp drop there in um, basis to start out the crop marketing year in the beginning of September, that's reflected in the black line. Um, and again, remember Hurricane Ida happened that last week of August. And so really that drop in basis from the last week of August to the first week of September, there's another uh, 30 cent drop or so there. So a big kind of um, erosion of, of basis having to do with uh, the issues that we had from the damage from Hurricane Ida. However, that has has rebounded pretty well, you know, relatively speaking, as we've brought a lot of those uh, terminals back online at the Gulf. We saw basis rebound again, you know, a couple of weeks ago, that was kind of right at that uh, blue line, which represents the historical average has since kind of gone back down a little bit. And so it was a little bit below, you know, 20 cents or so below maybe where it would be on average at this time of year. Um, but nonetheless is not near as, as negative as it was uh, there in the beginning of September as we were having uh, issues associated with damage from the hurricane. Uh, 
So Nathan, I think the comparison of this uh, West Memphis, Arkansas basis chart to the Southwest Indiana chart, really kind of interesting. I mean, um, it looks like in West Memphis basis is a even more negative relative to the average than what we're seeing um, in, in Southwest Indiana. But it's a parallel. I mean, I think in Southwest Indiana looks like we're probably about what 15 or so cents below the average. Right. And here in West Memphis, it looks like it's maybe close to 20. Uh, so really a very similar situation suggests that maybe what it is is some soft export demand, right? Does that make sense? I think that's exactly right. I think that again, you know, we've seen a lot of bouncing around because of what happened with the hurricane, but as things have kind of rebounded and got back to uh, you know, those terminals at the Gulf being open and, and operating, uh, I think what we're seeing now is probably a weakness in export demand and, and that influencing basis, obviously, you know, further down the river in this West, West Memphis location, but then, you know, that kind of going, you know, all the way back up to what we're seeing in Southwest Indiana. So you've also taken a look at the ethanol plant basis, and that's really interesting, I think, relative to what's going on with the margins at those ethanol plants. Right. So again, you know, this is not looking necessarily at a difference in geography, but looking at a difference in the end user being ethanol plant basis in Indiana. So again, this is just all of the ethanol plants in Indiana, uh, their basis bids averaged together. So this is kind of just one index of Indiana ethanol plant basis. I've got several years of data and some averages on here. And again, I've broken these years out because you know, the last few years we've had some pretty exceptional things happen, whether it's um, you know the uh, uh, wet spring and, and planning issues that we had back in the spring of 19, which had a big impact on basis uh, at, at those ethanol plants. And that's the, the green line. You see that big bump there um, in, in the summer of 2019. Then the red line is the 2019-2020 year where we had COVID hit in the March of 20. And again, that had a huge impact on gasoline demand and in turn had an impact on, on ethanol plant basis. And then last year was the, the purple line. You know, we saw that big run up in basis uh, over the summer uh, at these ethanol plants. And the question was, as we rolled into the new crop marketing year, what was going to happen uh, with corn basis at those ethanol plants. And as you can see, the black line here on the left-hand side of the chart, we started out strong, kind of coming out of, of the 2020-2021 uh, crop marketing year. And just like what you saw on some of the other charts that I showed, we've seen those basis levels erode here in the first several weeks of the crop marketing year. And really what I want to point out is uh, that black line uh, in these first couple of weeks of the crop marketing year has really gone back to the blue line. And the blue line is the average, the historical average. Again, here I'm averaging 15 through 17 as kind of the most recent three normal years. I use that term loosely, but, you know, taking out some of the other stuff that's gone on here over the last several years. And so really, you know, we've seen that erode and come back to what is maybe a more normal level uh, what we've seen uh, historically. Yeah, so it's kind of interesting. I think if you think about those ethanol margins, um, I guess the good news is we're back to that somewhat normal ethanol basis. If you look at the margins, you might expect to see maybe a little strengthening in that basis. Would you Would you agree with that? I think so. You know, looking at the production and the margin numbers, uh, and again, you know, uh, looking forward and thinking about what's going to happen um, with travel demand and that sort of thing over the, the next several months, assuming COVID kind of stays at bay, uh, I think that there's definitely some opportunity to see that strengthen a little bit relative to where it's at today um, as, as their ability, as they're able to kind of, you know, bid up um, 
for corn, uh, given kind of the, the margins that they have. And on a seasonal basis, I mean, your blue line suggests you would expect to see some improvement, right? Sure, right. We're, we're kind of, you know, getting into that harvest uh, time year when, you know, we tend to see basis kind of bottom out anyway. I mean, the other thing to keep in mind is we, we've just said, you know, if we're seeing some weakness in export demand, there might not be as much competition uh, for that corn. And so maybe the ethanol plants don't have to bid that up. So we'll have to kind of wait and see how those different factors all play in as, as harvest happens, as we get corn in the bin and we see what kind of plays out on the export side of things in terms of what the demand side really looks like for the corn that's out there. Yeah, that's a good point. And I, as Michael pointed out earlier, we're looking at record high corn production here in Indiana. So that's the other factor, right? Basis is all about local supply demand balance. And so we've got a relatively large supply relative to what we've had in, in recent years. So so you've, uh, you've taken a look at the futures price spreads as well. Yeah, so we kind of have been showing these, I think, a couple of months here as we've kind of rolled into the new crop marketing year. And really just what I want to point out is we talked last month about, you know, if you did some uh, pre-harvest marketing using futures, um, our general recommendation is to, to hedge straight into that new crop December corn futures uh, and then uh, potentially roll that hedge forward to a, a more uh, deferred futures contract month. Uh, as we get closer to expiration of that December contract. And the reason is the spread between those contracts uh, is not constant over time. And so what we tend to see is that those uh, spreads widen as we move towards uh, expiration of those uh, new crop contracts. And so, you know, we're really in that time frame. We were even saying this last month in September that, you know, we're in this uh, harvest time frame when we tend to see those spreads uh, at their widest point where you'd want to be thinking about uh, rolling those hedges forward, locking in those spreads uh, in your futures account, if that was something that uh, you had done. And, you know, on the corn side, that really hasn't changed much in the last month. So last month, I think the spread between December of this year and July of 22 uh, was 15 cents per bushel. That's now at 17 cents a bushel. So uh, not a, a huge change there. We'll talk about soybeans in a little bit, a much bigger change on that side. But if nothing else, we haven't lost any of those spreads, but maybe, you know, picked up a few cents um, if you haven't rolled those hedges forward. Yes. So thinking about that uh, a little bit more, Nathan. So if you're the kind of person who is looking for an opportunity to roll those hedges forward, you know, trying to lock in some, some storage returns, your analysis on a seasonal basis would suggest that now to maybe early November would be the time to do it, right? We should be if we're not at the peak for these spreads on a historical uh, kind of average time frame, we're probably very close. Then we might pick up a little bit, but it's the kind of thing you'd want to watch every single day, right? Yeah, exactly. So for corn specifically, right, we have the December uh, corn futures contract is, is the nearby that we're looking at. And as we basically move into October and November, so right immediately before that December contract um, expires and goes off the board, that's when we see those, those spreads uh, at their widest point. And so I, I would agree with exactly what you said. You'd really want to be following this closely, uh, you know, based on the historical kind of spread that you see on average, you know, it might get a little bit wider than this, but there's no guarantee of that, right? And so you'd really want to be paying attention. Uh, I would say that this is probably, you know, about where we're going to be. We could pick up, you know, another uh, nickel or so potentially, but again, we could also lose some of that. And so you'd really want to be paying attention if, if that was the position that you were in. Yeah. So, and, and historically it's, it's just the kind of thing you have to watch every day, right? I mean, it's, yeah. um, it's always interesting. All right. Let's take a look at, uh, uh, 
some yeah some pricing opportunities and we've moved beyond the harvest time frame into the jan delivery time frame because now a lot of people are thinking about you know do i want to price some of this corn that i've already placed in storage uh and what are the opportunities right yeah so we've kind of moved beyond and again this is really just an exercise to get people thinking about all right you know if you've put some some corn in the bin and you're thinking about you know what what is it that you're looking to get out of that uh, as it relates to some pricing opportunities so I'm looking at March 22 corn futures for my futures price. So uh, I have $5.30. I got this, you know, uh, either late last night or early this morning. You know, the corn market is down probably another 15 cents uh, since then. Uh, so you can uh, make that adjustment mentally here. So if you put that $5.30 um, futures price plus uh, a corn basis for central Indiana in January of five cents under, that's $5.25. Again, if you subtract 15 cents from that, because the market's down 15 cents this morning, that puts you in that $5.10 uh, range. Uh, that doesn't account for any storage costs to get you to January. So again, you're going to have some storage costs to get it from uh, today to January. And so $5.10, and you know, you've got, you know, a nickel to a dime potentially in storage costs to get it there. We're down closer to five. Michael's going to talk about break-evens uh, a little bit later, but, you know, we're, we're really in that point where, you know, we're looking at um, some, some potential uh, opportunity to have some, some return to storage there, but you're really cutting close to those break-evens. And so you really want to pay attention to what your cost structure is and think about, you know, what is the price that you're locking in? What is the basis that you're looking to get out of that? Yeah, so the pricing uh, has really gotten interesting. These look like great prices from a historical standard, but when we start thinking about where we're going with cost of production to some extent here on the 2021 crop, but especially as we look at 2022, uh, the picture's changed quite a bit, hasn't it? All right, let's take a look at the soybean side because, you know, we've had a negative reaction on the corn side to the reports yesterday, but truthfully, the big surprise was on the soybean side. USDA increased both the 2020 and the 2021 crop yield estimates. In other words, they went back and said that they had underestimated the 2020 crop raised that uh, by boosting the yield. And then they came back and boosted the 2021 yield estimate that they published a month ago. So the 2020 yield estimates up eight tenths of a bushel per acre, and they bumped up the 2021 yield estimate up by nine tenths of a bushel per acre, all compared to what they had published just last month. And you know, if you look at it again, Michael, I think you took a look at the state by state estimates. Um, that Northern Corn Belt where we had about dry weather all summer. Uh, those are some pretty big increases they looked at in terms of changing those yield estimates, right? USDA adjusted Minnesota yield, soybean yield up again. So that's two months in a row that they've adjusted that upward. It's still slightly below last year's yield, but not near as below, as, as, as far below as corn was. Uh, corn was down 7% from last year. Uh, the corn yield in Minnesota, uh, soybeans are now down only 2%. And so that's certainly been adjusted up considerably uh, in the last couple months. Of course, North Dakota and South Dakota are still looking at some pretty pretty low yields there. Uh, we're looking at record soybean yields, Iowa, Illinois, Indiana, and Ohio, uh, as well as Kentucky. And so, and so uh, yeah, there's still some very, very strong yields, uh, particularly in the Eastern Corn Belt. And I, I think those, uh, those states and the adjustment in Minnesota is why we're seeing that bump uh, in the soybean yield, almost a full bushel uh, from the last uh, uh, estimate. You know, and if 
I, I think a lot of us expected to, to see some increase in the Northern Corn Belt. Maybe one of the little bit of a surprise for those of us here in Indiana, for example, was if you looked at the drought monitor and how dry we were uh, in late summer, I think there was some expectation that maybe we would pull these Eastern Corn Belt soybean yields back a little bit, and we did not do that, right? So that was maybe a little bit of a surprise, I think, for some of us and for the market in general. Yeah, that was that was definitely a surprise, and 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 Iowa, it's particularly noteworthy uh, that Iowa uh, Iowa yield is up thirteen percent uh, from last year. Of course, they had that really bad windstorm uh, in Iowa last year, and so yields were down quite a bit uh, compared to trend. But but Iowa this year is going to hit a record at sixty one bushel. So if you look at the production numbers, then that pushes us up to four point four five billion bushels. That's a record large. Uh, soybean production for the U.S. Um, they also obviously increased last year's estimate. They raised that by 85 million bushels. This year's crop estimate compared to last month up 74 million bushels. All of that fed right into the carryover estimates, and that's part of what gave us that big surprise. Uh, and we'll talk about that here in a minute. Um, on the export side, USDA really no change in their export forecast compared to what they put published last month. So they're still at 2.09 billion bushels. Ed, if you want to click forward on that next slide. Um, so that's still below where we were on the 2020 crop. We came in at 2.265 uh, billion bushels. That was a very, very small increase compared to what they published a month ago. Um, so, but no change on the on the 2021 crop estimate. And then if you start looking at the export uh, shipments that have taken place so far and the export commitments, this is more disappointing than what we saw on the corn side. Uh, if you look at export shipments that have taken place uh, so far this year, uh, both to all destinations and to China, they are down substantially compared not only to last year, but also down compared to two years ago. So uh, soft exports on the soybean side are really starting to weigh on the soybean market along with those supply estimates that USDA has, has given us with respect to uh, the supply demand estimates. And then if you look at the commitments uh, across uh, the entire marketing year, so this includes not only the what's been shipped so far here the first five weeks of the year, but also the commitments for the rest of the marketing year that have been made so far. Um, substantially below this time last year. Um, I think total export commitments down about 37% compared to where they were uh, this time last year. Uh, commitments to China alone are down about 44% compared to what they were uh, committed to this time last year. So I think that's one of the big concerns, not only the supply estimates that were coming off of uh, USDA raising the yield for the 2020 and the 2021 crops, but also the softness in what's taking place on these export channels with respect to soybeans. If you look at the carryover estimates uh, that USDA has published, and again, this is like a corn chart we used earlier, this just kind of shows how the supply demand picture was changing as you went through the course of the marketing year. In the spring, we got that estimate coming off of the 2020 crop into the 2021 crop marketing year, all the way down to 120 million bushels. But since May, it's done nothing but go up. Um, and on the October report, the big surprise, this was the October surprise, we bumped that carryover up estimate up from 175 last month up to 256 this month. Um, and so that was a huge surprise. Um, I don't think anybody was expecting that. And then you look at the 2021 crop estimates, 
um, again, we were uh, first three months, June, July, and August, we were at 155. Bumped that up a little bit last month to 185 million bushels being carried over from the 21 crop into the 22 crop year. And then this month, the combination of higher yields, um, pushing those carryover over from, from last year uh, into the 2021 crop year, plus the higher yield estimate for this year, gives us a 320 million bushel carryover of soybeans at the end of the 21 marketing year much, much larger than really anybody was expecting coming into the report. I think a lot of people thought we would see this this go up relative to where USDA was last month, but nowhere near the, the 320. Uh, that was the surprise. If you look at ending stocks as a percentage of usage, this is a big change. Uh, USDA currently estimating ending stocks as the percentage of usage for the 21 crop going into the 22 crop marketing year at 7.3%. Um, a month ago, that was at 4.2%. So if you look at it from a historical perspective, 7.3% is still reasonably tight. It's below that 10% kind of thumb rule that we like to use. But I think the key is that number has been going up. And it's the direction of change that I think has really been the focus of the market. And the fact that a big change in one month going from 4.2 to 7.3% in just one month. That's pretty unusual to see that kind of a change. And correspondingly, USDA then reduced their marketing year average price uh, forecast. So um, if you look at the world stock side, world stocks, uh, unlike corn, which held constant uh, compared to last month, soybean stocks did go up. Uh, they bumped up the 2020 estimate and the 2021 estimate by about 1% both on both of those. And so now we're at 27.7, almost 28%. So again, from a historical standpoint, that's not a terrible carryover level, but the key point I think is the direction of change and it's been moving in the wrong direction. And then finally, you look at the prices, uh, the marketing year average prices, uh, USDA pulled it back by 55 cents a bushel this month to fit 12.35. Um, that follows an 80 cent reduction in their marketing year average projection last month uh, so we've seen two back-to-back -back big changes in USDA's expectation for prices, and now we're down to 12.35 for a marketing year average. So Nathan, you've taken a look at some storage opportunities on the soybean side as well. Yeah. So again, starting out just looking at uh, some cash forward contract bids here in Central Indiana for soybeans, uh, we can see that again um, the the dark gold line there that running across the bottom. Uh, is those cash forward contract bids are below the implied break-even storage prices. So the price you would need to get in order to offset uh, the storage costs that you'd incur to store from, you know, October to uh, some future date. With again, the exception being as we move out kind of further into the crop marketing year, say uh, in January, we see those uh, forward contract bids actually jumping up above um, the, the break-even there. So again, if you look at the on-farm storage scenario to uh, store, to forego the $11.77 bid today and store uh, out through uh, the beginning of the year, you'd need to uh, be selling for, you know, somewhere just below $12, but the forward contract bid uh, there in the beginning of January is about $12.04. So that's above, meaning that you, know, you would be able to uh, to lock in that price today uh, and be able to to have a, a small margin above your storage cost. 
However, again, comparing that to the commercial scenario, you're still below the implied break even associated with the higher cost structure of the commercial storage. So, you know, as you're evaluating kind of your operation and the storage opportunities that you have, um, you need to be looking at um, where those bids are falling relative to what it's going to cost you uh, to store to some point into the future. Nathan, I've had a couple questions related to uh, the relative advantages of storing corn versus soybeans if you have a pretty tight storage situation. Uh, what would you be your recommendation with regard to that type of question? Yeah, that's a really good question. So the research that we've done, so I had a grad student several years ago that did some research that specifically looked at kind of the relative returns to, to corn and soybean storage. If you look through, you know, the end of the year, so from now to, to January or so, the returns were pretty similar for, for both crops. As you looked further into the future, uh, into the, the spring and, and summer months, there tended to be more frequently more um, uh, scenarios where the, the returns to soybean, soybean storage uh, were higher than the returns to corn storage. Now, again, it depends on a lot of things. You know, how did, is it a, a hedged versus an, uh, a speculative price scenario? But really, in either case, to answer your question in the most simplest form, there tends to be, appear to be an advantage to storing soybeans uh, over uh, storing corn. Again, you know, the optimal scenario would be to, to be able to diversify and have a little bit of both. But if, if the constraint was that you had to pick one over the other, historically, we've seen that the, the returns to soybean storage tend to be uh, more frequent and a little bit higher. That creates a little bit of a dilemma this year, right, given the negativity that's going on in the soybean market. Sure. The strategy that you outlined is kind of a strategy you might want to adopt for, you know, 10 years in a row or 15 years in a row, right? And then you're always faced with that dilemma of, is this the one year that it maybe isn't going to work? Um, and so, you know, I think it's, it's something to give a lot of thought to and, and really thinking about it from a standpoint of a, of a marketing year perspective. Um, you know, one of the things to think about is that carryover estimate on soybeans by historical standards is still reasonably tight. A lot of focus right now on, on the negativity because it's larger than we thought it was a few days ago, clearly larger than we thought it was a couple of months ago. Um, but by historical standards, a 7% or 7.5% carryover is still a reasonably tight carryover number. So I don't think that rules out the possibility of seeing some positive uh, returns to storage, uh, to unpriced storage uh, into the spring months. Uh. And another wrinkle there is that's very, very uh, specific to 2021 is we already have some pretty high incomes uh, in 2021. And so most people are cash basis taxpayers in, in the farm community. And so a lot of people are going to be tempted to, to try to store corn and soybeans until January. And so I think this is one of those questions that we will be returning to uh, in, in, in upcoming webinars. So Nathan, you've taken a look at the basis situation and soybeans as well. Yeah, so a similar exercise looking at uh, soybean basis and really the story is relatively similar in terms of, again, starting out looking at uh, soybean basis here in central Indiana. Again, we saw a pretty big deterioration in soybean basis in those first couple of weeks of the crop marketing year bringing us back in line here. I'm looking at a two year average. So that's kind of the thumb roll that we use for so, so three years for corn, two years for soybeans. So that puts us right in line with that uh, two year historical average uh, for soybean basis. If we flip forward and look at uh, Southwest Indiana, again, representing uh, a little bit more of a, a river market. 
We started with lower basis levels. Again, that had to do with what was going on with Hurricane Ida there uh, right at the beginning of the crop marketing year. We had weaker basis kind of all the way up the river. And again, that has, has uh, weakened uh, even from there below the historical average. So again, you know, you're looking at, you know, 15 to 20 cents below that historical average. And so again, like we talked about, some of that might be driven by what happened with the hurricane and, and the um, damage that we saw in some of those export terminals. However, you know, as we've seen, you know, those come back online. I think this uh, again reflects uh, what's going on on the export side of things and, and uh, the weakness that we're seeing there is being reflected uh, in that soybean basis. So you took a look at uh, not only the Southwest Indiana basis, but then you took a look at basis down at the Arkansas and the Mississippi River to get an idea as to how that compares. And, and that chart's kind of interesting. And it's not exactly the same kind of chart that you showed for, for corn, is it? Yeah, so it's a little bit different. Uh, and again, so what we see is, uh, you know, uh, a big drop in basis there right at the beginning of the crop marketing year. And again, if you back up another week where we're in the last week of August where the hurricane hit, you know, we see again another 20 cents or so drop. So pretty big drop there in the first several weeks of the marketing year. But as we saw those um, export terminals come back online there at the Gulf, we saw a recovery of basis. And really at this point, you know, we have basis levels at this uh, West Memphis location for soybeans that are right in line with those historical averages. So that's uh, that's a little different than what I showed in Southwest Indiana. So we'll have to see kind of how those two markets uh, um, move going forward, whether they move in parallel or whether we see some some differentiation there between what's going on in Southwest Indiana and what's going on further downriver. Yeah, I guess if you'd show, asked me what I expected to see in this chart before you showed it to me this morning, I would have expected it to look a lot like the corn chart, particularly given the fact that soybean exports are even softer than they are on, on the corn side. So that was maybe a little bit of a surprise. So I think it's going to actually warrant some further uh, watching as, as time goes on. Yeah. So you've also taken a look at the spreads and there's been a change since we looked at these a month ago, right? Yeah. So again, we're, we're at that point in the year where if you've done some pre-harvest marketing into the new crop November soybean futures contract, and you're looking at potentially rolling that forward to a more deferred futures contract, you know, you'd want to be really thinking about uh, making that roll given what's happening with the spreads. And again, it's interesting because so for soybeans, right, that uh, new crop uh, futures contract is November, which is a month earlier than corn. And so again, if you think about the eight to six to four weeks prior to expiration of that November contract, we were, you know, smack dab in the middle of that um, with that uh, soybean futures contract going off the board here in just a couple of weeks. And so what we've seen is um, that spread has widened considerably since uh, last month. Uh, and so I think last month, the spread between November 21 and July 2022 uh, soybean futures was like 24 cents uh, or so. And so we've seen that spread widen to 37 cents. So almost, uh, what is that, 13 cents or so. Uh, and so that's a that's a pretty big move there in just a couple of weeks. And so again, if you're in a position where you've done some pre-harvest marketing uh, into the new crop, uh, November soybeans, and you're wanting to do some storage and maybe roll that hedge forward, uh, you would certainly wanna be looking at taking advantage of that because again, as we move, you know, towards expiration, that can get volatile. It can go one direction or the other. And historically, that's a that's a very decent spread to lock in 
uh, between that November and July soybean futures contract. Yeah, so I think looking at the analysis that you did a couple of years ago, looking at these spreads, uh, Nathan, um, on the corn side, the, those spreads tend to peak out late October into the month of November. Yep. The soybean spreads tend to peak out a little earlier, right? So we're probably, I mean, we, we might be at the peak right now. Would that be a reasonable thing for to say? Yeah, I, I think so. I, you know, again, anything could happen, but based on the historical average, I mean, again, you've only got a couple of weeks here until that, that contract goes off the board. And again, as you move into that expiration month, it can, it can kind of get a little wild there. Uh, and so, yeah, so I think from, from a, a practical standpoint, we're at the point that I would call the rule of like, this is the widest that, that it's going to get. This would be probably when you want to go ahead and lock in that spread. And looking at your chart there, uh, Nathan, you know, if I was going to roll from, say, November into one of those deferred contracts, I'd probably pick, depending on my individual situation, I'd probably pick either the March or the May, right? Yeah. Maybe again, give that July a little more opportunity to, to perhaps widen out some. Yeah, that, that's a that's a great point. And, and it really depends on the situation and what you're trying to accomplish there. But yeah, looking at those spreads, uh, that that March or May time frame looks probably to be more favorable. Um but in, you know, it kind of just depends on, on what you're trying to do there. And that, there's the potential that that July could widen out a little bit more as we move forward. But uh, I haven't actually delved into the month to month differences quite as closely. So I can't say specifically, you know, what each month difference when that that uh, spread tends to, to reach its widest point. But based on the, the analysis we have done, I think that's probably a pretty good uh, idea. I think you've just identified a project for a student that's looking for a research topic. So there you okay. go. All right. So you've taken a look at some new crop uh, soybean op pricing opportunities for people that are thinking about doing some pricing for January delivery. Yeah. So again, just kind of, you know, getting in this mindset of thinking, okay, you know, we're in the middle of harvest, we're putting some soybeans away. You know, what are we trying to accomplish with that storage? Uh, and again, just thinking maybe here over the next several months uh, into the beginning of the year. So if you look at soybean futures, um, for March of 2022, we're looking at $12.28. Again, that's that's down uh, again this this morning. So that soybean futures price this morning is probably closer to 1210. Uh, again, you've got a, a January 2022 Central Indiana basis of 25 cents under. So if you use the 1228, that puts you at $12.03. If you use the $12.10 futures price from this morning or the you know mid-morning today. Uh, that puts you down closer to 11.85, 11.90. Uh, and again, if you start looking at, you know, Michael's break-evens, and you're thinking about uh, the storage costs associated with getting that, uh, getting those soybeans from today to January, you got to start thinking pretty seriously about what maybe once looked like a really, really good um, price, well above your break-even. As those break-evens have evolved, um, that may be maybe changing a little bit. Yeah, so that brings up uh, some topics for Michael to discuss. So you've taken a look at a variety of topics, but start off by talking a little bit about the upward pressure on cash rents. Yes, the thing that's changed the most in the last month with regard to this particular slide is 20, 2022 projection. Uh, we, we've lost at least 20 to $30 uh, in, in terms of net return to land for 2022 because of higher production costs. And so it's not like we haven't factored in higher production costs uh, before the last couple of weeks, but fertilizer costs just keep increasing. Uh, and so when we, we were taking a look at a situation where we were uh, seemed to be above uh, you know, projected cash rent. I do have a 5% increase 
built in from 21 to 22, we're looking at something that, that's almost identical uh, in terms of a net return to land uh, compared to cash rent with more potential upward pressure uh, pressure on, on costs, uh, reducing that net return to land. So let's think about where we're at today uh, compared to where we were in 2013, because the prices, the price, uh, prices that Jim was talking about earlier, uh, the market year average prices, they are slightly below uh, 2013, but not that much below. And so what's different about today uh, compared to 2013? Well, first of all, 2013, if you look at that, there were several years that were well, that were net return to land was well above uh, well above cash rent, driving those cash rents up closer to three hundred dollars. Uh, they they got up very close to three hundred dollars uh, for West Central Indiana for, for average productivity land. We're not there today, but nor and nor do I think we should be because our cost structure is higher right now than even even uh, even that that we experienced in 2013. Uh, and we're looking at some pretty high break-even prices, uh, even compared to 2013. So that's important. Uh, that's important uh, to factor that in. Having said that, I, I think I would be surprised if we don't see uh, a five percent or so increase in cash rent from 21 to 22. But I would caution uh, people about being more aggressive than that. I've talked to quite a few operators and landlords, and I always talk to them about. Uh, the increase in cost pressure, uh, the increase in the break-even prices that we're really seeing. And if someone's really worried that they're not going to be able to capture potential high uh, uh, cash prices uh, in, in, in the fall of 22, think about a flex rent rather than, than a fixed cash rent. Uh, the flex rent, you lower the, you lower the base cash rent, uh, usually about 10% or so. Uh, and then if revenue is really high because of high yield, high prices or a combination of both of those, uh, both people, the, the, the landlord gets a bonus. Uh, and so it's a good way to factor in uncertainty related to costs and prices. So Michael, you've also taken a look at some net farm income projections, right? Yeah, Based this is where it becomes farm. a little bit more obvious, the impact of the cost. The prices really haven't changed all that much. The projected prices we're looking at for the, the fall of 2022, it's costs. Uh, we were looking at uh, a month ago or two months ago, uh, uh, you know, 2022 net farm income per acre being very similar to that long run average, which is about $125 per acre. Now we're looking at something less than that, again, uh, with perhaps more increases in cost production, uh, you know, coming down the, down the road. I'm just using current estimates uh, for cash rent and fertilizer prices, and, and certainly uh, those could be relatively low, uh, you know, given the increase in prices that, you know, increase increases in input prices that we've been seeing here the last few weeks. So let's take a closer look at those fertilizer prices. Yeah, this this so one far. here is rather shocking. So I, I think we want to pause a little bit uh, and, and stare at this for, for a minute or so. And what I've done here is I've, I've looked at USDA NAS Illinois crop you know production report, crop production report. So this is USDA NAS data uh, for fertilizer prices. And uh, looking at uh, uh, you know October seventh, that's the latest available data. This report comes out uh, every other week uh, compared to, to uh, October eighth, twenty twenty. And uh, here you can see a doubling uh, of anhydrous ammonia prices, urea prices, uh, phosphate prices are more than doubling of uh, uh, pot, potash prices, and so some really strong increases uh, in fertilizer prices. And we've been hearing, Jim, uh, that this these increases in prices. Uh, may not be over. And so I, I want you to comment a little bit on that. But before you do, uh, you can also compare these prices to the prices last March. Uh, if you compare 
Uh, the October 7th, 2021 prices for prices last March, you're not looking at 100% increases, but you are looking at 35 to 40% uh, increases depending on the type of fertilizer uh, you're looking at. Uh, but the bottom line is fertilizer costs are, are look like they're going to be very high, uh, higher than what we saw uh, in 2013, which is the last year where we saw very high fertilizer prices in the United States. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things that we're going to be watching over the course of the next few weeks and really throughout the winter is going to be what's taking place with these fertilizer prices for spring applications, not just the fall. And I think one of the concerns uh, that I've heard in the industry is what's going to take place with respect to anhydrous ammonia prices. Um, and I think a lot of our viewers are probably aware of the issues that are surrounding that with respect to natural gas prices, um, not only here in the U.S., but also around the world and the impact that that could have on anhydrous ammonia production um, and the ability to move that uh, product around the world as well. So um, we could be looking at some spot shortages and uh, not only high prices, but spot shortages. So this, it's gonna be a difficult situation. And I think it's from our standpoint, Michael, uh, the recommendation would be if you haven't locked in your fertilizer needs, you should be talking to your supplier or suppliers about it and see uh, if you can get those locked in as, as quickly as possible. Definitely the case. So you've taken a look at some break-even prices, and those are somewhat stunning as well, Michael. Yes, they sure are. I'll start in the middle there on average productivity of land. That break-even price for corn is approaching 490, and and as we've been talking about that, that, that it may be higher than that. Uh, you know, you know, as we get closer to, to spring, and so uh, right now that's about the same as the expected corn price. Uh, looking in, looking at fall uh, 22 uh, futures prices adjusted for uh, adjusted for basis. Uh, the high productivity does have a lower break-even price, closer to that 450. But again, these are so much higher than what we saw just last year. These break-even prices are approaching 15% higher uh, than what we saw last year. That's that's a very unprecedented increase in break-even price in one year. Uh, during that 2007-2013 period, we saw break-even prices climb rather dramatically, but they didn't climb that fast in one year. And so this goes back to those cash rent negotiations that I was talking about earlier. Make sure you factor in uh, this very large uh, increase in break-even price into those cash rent uh, cash rent uh, negotiations because $5 corn sounds awful good, but when you see a, a, an increase in break-even price of 15% uh, in one year, you have to factor that in. Uh, along with the $5 corn uh, when you're trying to establish that that base cash rent for flex arrangement and a uh, cash rent for the fixed cash rent arrangement. And you've taken a look at soybean break-evens as well, right? Yeah, these are even more alarming uh, in many ways, just as alarming, if you will. I mean, obviously, nitrogen's not as big an issue here, and so, uh, and so uh, that, that favors soybeans somewhat. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, we're seeing break-even price, prices close to $12.00. Uh, which is very similar to what the, the projection is uh, for the fall of, of 2022. Uh, even for high productivity ground, we're looking at a breaking price close to $11, whereas just last year, uh, that was below $10. That was probably $9.50 to $9.75 uh, for quite a few folks. So big increases of break-even prices for both corn and soybeans. And that's important when you're thinking about the relative profitability of corn and soybeans. It's not just corn where we're seeing those higher costs. It's also soybeans. Yeah, good point. And Michael, you know, the Ag Economy Barometer surveys that we've done uh, the last several months have really indicated that people are very aware of this increase in costs that's taken place. And I think our most recent survey 
said that um, one third roughly of the people in the survey said that they expect to see farm input prices increase by more than 12% in the upcoming year. And I think some of those folks were obviously looking at what was going on with fertilizer, but truthfully it's other costs as well, machinery, um, every every cost category is going up uh, simultaneously, right? Yeah, I have, I'm having trouble coming up with one that's actually coming down. Uh, and, and so yes, about every cost category is going up with, with machinery costs and fertilizer costs and perhaps cash rent uh, being some of the largest increases. And we've also looked at uh, we've also looked at the relative profitability of, of corn versus soybeans. Updated this chart, and uh, uh, you know even though even though you might expect that the cost increases to hit corn a little harder because of the the increase in the nitrogen price, that's definitely the case. But soybean price has been deteriorating a little faster than corn price, and so we're still looking at about a break even or no no difference between corn and soybean profitability in 2022. And so it's going to be really interesting to see. Uh, what decisions people make uh, as we get closer to that planting season, uh, corn versus soybeans. And certainly, as we've been talking here, that that nitrogen issue, uh, I think is going to be very important in how this plays out. Yeah, that's. I think we're going to be watching that closely all winter long with respect to the impact of this relative change in production costs is going to have on acreage decisions for the 2022 crop season. So, well, with that, that wraps up our webinar. I want to thank uh, our panelists today, Michael Langemeyer and Nathan Thompson, for joining us. Um, we will do another webinar in mid-November following the release of the USDA's uh, World Ag Supply Demand Estimates. So if you're not signed up for our webinar series, I encourage you to go ahead and do that, and you'll get an email uh, letting you know uh, when the next report's coming out and when the next webinar is going to be, but it'll be in mid-November following that USDA World Ag Supply Demand Estimate report. So with that, on behalf of the Center for Commercial Agriculture, I want to thank you for joining us. I'm Jim Minter.